Hey, good morning.
Good morning. I apologize in advance. I'm a little nasally today. I've had a little bit of an issue with sinuses and maybe even a tangle with a head cold. Uh, let's go over a couple of announcements, if we will. Skip down to number five. No evening service tonight. Uh, will we resume tentatively next week? On the back of the bulletin, you'll see a place for notes. Uh, I think it's a welcome addition to our bulletins. Uh, so you could write down comments and everything from uh, scripture verses to pastor's comments. Uh, also pens, so please avail yourself uh, for, your, for your ink pens. People in the prayer. We have a list down here, prayer needs, under doctor's care. Pastor Luke, uh, as you can see, is, is, is back on the mend. Uh, gotten rid of his UTI and uh, is feeling much, much better. Uh, other individuals that we uh, keep track of is uh, Jennifer Ziegler. I have no news on Jennifer, how she's doing. If anybody has a, a, a news break on her, let me know. Uh, Vicki Lelly, I was just told, is having a lot of issues with her legs. Uh, uh, she's getting blood down to the legs, but uh, valves inside the legs, uh, a situation that I'm familiar with, uh, is not allowing the blood to be returned. So that causes just a myriad of problems, including blood clots. So we need to keep her in prayer. Canandela Lewis. Ken, how is Della doing? It's been very interesting two weeks. We went for a heart attack. Well, <coughs> he gets in there. Well, I don't know the heart. They go in there and look for bad stuff. Well, we found it. One of her arteries was 95% plug. Another one was 80%. So while he was in there, Okay. I guess the big question is, is she getting any sleep now? Well, she's sleeping a lot better. I don't know why. Now, she was able to get rid of that, that compression vest that she was wearing, correct? She, um, well, she's got a new bed. It's a lazy boy. That's her new bed. <laughs> she sleeps better than that in the bed. Well, whatever you can do, that. Yeah, amen. And how are you feeling? Are you are you feeling better or you gotta have a little bit of stress taken from you? Well I think once she gets the, the, the uh, arteries cleaned out a little bit. Like her to try to move herself down and 
I have to believe that once she gets that other procedure done. Still a lot, still a lot to pray for for her. So. Continue to hold her up and you as well in prayer. Okay. So much going on, such a small little church. But uh, the Lord is good, isn't he? He sees, sees to our needs, continually blesses us, and uh, we are all the better for it. And I guess the last comment I have is welcome to our visitors today. I'd ask you all to make yourselves uh, known to our visitors, uh, welcome them in, and uh, shake hands, give hugs, and uh, <coughs> we will bring them aboard. Okay. Any other comments? Any other uh, prayer requests, George? You threw me a curveball just to put me off my game, didn't you? <laughs> okay, he's testing me, always testing me. Yes, I almost forgot. Uh, Mercy is, uh, is down in Ann Arbor, Grand Rapids, and it's a five-day, five-day test, three to five days, something like that. part of the brain is actually creating the seizure. So if, it's, if they can do it in five days, wonderful. If not, they're going to extend or stay to seven days. As it was explained to me, they're going to try and induce a seizure by putting in probes or needles into the brain itself in different areas. No. No? No, no. they are trying to induce by they sleep-deprived her last night. Okay. And they sugared her up this morning. So that's the first line of action is to do her triggers. Triggers are sleep deprivation, food triggers, sugar, um, MSG, and artificial sweetness. <coughs> they're going to go that route first, and if that doesn't work, then they're going to start attacking off of her meds. That those are that's the as extensive as it's going to get. We're going to pray that they don't have to back off on her meds though, because that can affect pain really poorly when she gets. I would say just just 
cut all that out and force her to watch uh, repeated episodes of The View. <laughs> oh, strike that. Okay, if there's nothing else, then uh, our scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, and that will be verses 1 through 14, and that will be page 1345 in your pew Bible.
would you stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? Dale, would you kindly lead us, please? We you take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number one, number one in the brown.
Thank you. You may be seated. Marcy, you were the first hand that I saw. Yes, ma'am. Do you have a favorite <coughs> hand? Uh, 347 in the brown. And do you have a reason for this one? Absolutely. 347 <coughs> in the brown.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and that's going to be page 1888 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. First Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 Therefore rid yourself of all malice and all deceit hypocrisy envy and slander of every kind like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good as you come to him the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a royal nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Will you take your red hymnal this, night, this time, the Red Trinity, and turn to 107, 107 in the red. Thank you. 
our text of scripture is 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2. Last time we were in our study of 1 Peter, we looked at the subject of introspective faith, that is, faith that looks inward instead of upward, a faith that is committed to maintaining the status quo instead of moving toward positive spiritual change. We are rich spiritually, but we may be hoarding the wealth instead of giving it out to those blind and deaf and in the darkness of the world's lies. See, having the truth and maintaining the truth are only part of our spiritual stewardship. We are to make disciples of the truth that we have in Christ. And to do this, we must be beyond prayer. We must also speak to people with the realization that they are lost. They do not have some truth about God in their hearts. They have distorted truth, which in the end is no truth. Half-truths are just as damning as whole lies because they tend to give people a false peace. We looked at four symptoms of an inter, in, introverted church. Number one, an introverted ch- church has spotlight or tubular vision with little ability to see the big picture. So there's majoring in the minors and missing the whole story. Secondly, there's a feeling of superiority to others in different Christian traditions. In other words, being Baptists should not be our goal. Being biblical is to be our goal. Being Calvinist is not the goal. Being committed to what the Bible teaches is the goal. And Christ is to get the glory. Secondly, or thirdly, we learn that in a stifled church is hamstrung by negative criticism. By that I mean we shut up and shut down when men begin to oppose the gospel that we proclaim. We get antsy. We get scared. And number four, the emphasis is on being nice instead of faithful to Christ and his word. Sometimes you can't be nice. We must deal with the blood on our hands. We have to call sin for what it is to be effective ambassadors for our Lord. So we admit sin and we admit it in our own lives. And that's why we need a savior. And there's only one Savior, and that's the Lord Christ. 
Now today we want to look at the living church. The living church. As we come to this, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to intervene for us. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that it tells us the truth. Because the Holy Spirit inspired every word that's in our Bible. Yes, men were the ones that had the pen and the ink and wrote it down. But they were inspired by the Holy Spirit that moved them to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because it was God, the Holy Spirit, they were representing. That's why we have a solid true statement from the Word of God to help our souls and lead us to salvation. Thank you for that and bless us as we study. In Christ's name, amen. Today I want to talk about the subject of a living church. The first thing I want you to note is that it is a house made from rubble. In our day, in our society, most everyone values the new. People want new clothes to wear, fresh cooked food, not leftovers to eat, new furniture to adorn their houses, new cars to drive, new hairstyles, new electronic gadgets, new learning sources, new everything. Old is out, it's on the curb. For the trash man to pick up, new is what we crave. This is also true in the building trades. When a person is building a home, and there's not much of that going on in our uh, present housing market, but when they're ready to build a home, they want new lumber used to frame the walls, new insulation to insulate, New piping to do the plumbing, new wire to do the wiring, etc. This even carries over when people are looking for housing already built. If you have watched any of the uh, episodes on Home and Garden TV channel, virtually every house viewed by the prospective buyers has some defect in their eyes that they cannot abide. Comments are heard like, eh, the kitchen cabinets are old. They're old-fashioned. The bathroom needs updated completely. It has pink tile from the 60s. That lighting fixture is impractical. Doesn't give much light. On and on it goes. Nothing escapes scrutiny. From the basement to the attic, the buyers are looking for the new. And if it is not already there, they are thinking of how they can afford to tear out the old and replace it with the new. They never say, I never hear it, well, uh, we can live with this for a little while and replace the obsolete in time. <laughs> no, we're not talking here about a broken furnace or a water heater or something like that that must be replaced 
immediately. But we're talking about items which are simply outdated, maybe even ugly in the eye of the beholder, but perfectly functional the way they are. And the new generation of buyers wants everything new. Now. Now. Not later. And this obsession for the new means that couples, buyers, will tag thousands of extra dollars onto their mortgage, which they can ill afford, just so they can do the renovations here and now, instead of waiting <coughs> to earn the extra funds. But observe from our text that the spiritual house that God built, verse 5, is comprised of living stones, people whose previous lives were nothing but lives consisting of, verse 1, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, every kind of slander, verse 1. So these were not good and wonderful people, admired by men or by God. Peter mentions other items, great flaws. Verse 14 tells us they were ignorant people ruled by evil desires. Chapter 225 calls them wayward sheep going astray. So that's disobedient lives. Chapter 4, verse 3 and following gives a rather descriptive portrayal of their past. He says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousings, detestable idolatry. Whoa. And if we allow Paul to chime in here a little bit, he says, Brothers, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following. The materials roster that God used for his house was this. The uneducated, the non-influential, those with unimpressive ancestry, the foolish, the weak, the lowly, the despised. Wow. Not exactly a list of the who's who in our society. And as long as we are thinking of the things society values, look at verse 4. You have come to the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. 
And we know that Peter is referring to Jesus Christ as the precious stone, the foundation stone of the church set in place by God himself. Verse 1, verse 7, excuse me. Now how is it that Jesus, God's Son, the Savior appointed for the world, would be rejected? Well, he tells us, verse 7. Now to you who believe, this stone, Christ, is precious. But to, to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people. Now get the picture here. God builds his spiritual house with rubble with the broken and twisted people of society, with defective parts and lives that have been used up and wasted by many evil practices. These are not the good people of society. No, these are the prostitutes, the thieves, the liars, the cheats. They are the common folk, the fishermen, the tax collectors, the accountants, the farmers, the seamstresses, the auto workers, the plumbers, the carpenters, the trash men, and sons of trash men like me. They are also the poor and the needy, the ordinary folk that you run into at work, in the malls, or at play all the time. And all this riffraff are built by God on the foundation of His holy, perfect, spotless, sinless Son, rejected by unbelievers, but precious to all who have tapped into His life-giving forgiveness and salvation. Peter says of Him, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 14 and following. Have you ever thought about this? God calls out of the sinners of the world the people with whom he builds his church. He placed them as living stones on the sinless, perfect living stone, verse 4, Christ, that all the world rejects and hates. During World War II, Hitler sent his Stuga bombers across the English Channel to bomb London, England. The residents hid themselves in the sewers, which were three stories below surface level. 
Eventually they came out to see what they could see. And when they did, the people saw Winston Churchill walking among the rubble, among the homes that were broken and bashed down, and the businesses that were destroyed. And he was reminiscing on the fact that Great Britain is an island. It is. It's a big island. So to rebuild, they were going to use what could be salvaged from the debris. Why? Because new material would have to be imported from America, which Roosevelt agreed to do on the Lend-Lease program. But they learned that Hitler's submarines were destroying the merchant marine ships that we granted to send to aid Great Britain. And so Britain was forced to use whatever they could salvage from the debris. Now, (laughs) who builds houses this way? Who uses old two-by-fours on new foundations? Who sets defective brick or block on new cement? It's like God's church. And it is almost as though God has sought out the worst possible building material with which to construct his house. The world despises us and the Savior on whom we are built. But the truth remains that we, not they, (coughs) are a people belonging to God. Verse 9. The world cannot make such a claim. The religious, the churchgoers, the devotees of various other faiths cannot make this claim. But the poor and the broken, the hurting and the rejected of men may indeed be found in the stonework of Christ's church. It's absolutely foreign to human values. No one builds with old rubble, broken block, leaky pipes. But we have a house built from rubble. Secondly, it is a worship house where all are priests. Verse 5 says that we are living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9 calls us a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Wow. If you know anything about the Old Testament temple worship, you know that not everyone had access to God. 
Not everyone was a priest. The descendants of the tribe of Levi were appointed as priests. And the line of Aaron constituted the high priest who alone had access into the inmost holy place and only once a year where he was make atonement for sin through the blood of an animal sacrifice. A real tangible tabernacle of canvas tapestries was eventually built and later of cut stone and wood and gold overlay, furniture, an altar, a laver, a lampstand, and so on, but still rather modest as you think of things. Hebrews 9 verse 6 and following states it this way. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed or opened as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. External regulations applying until the time of the new order. When Christ came as high priest, high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 9, verse 6 and following. When I read a text like this <coughs> on the Old Testament restrictions on worship, the thing that jumps out at me is this. Don't come any closer. That's what God is saying. Don't come any closer. Stay your distance. Stay back. Even for the priests, but especially for the lay people, the message of worship seemed to be that God is infinitely holy and you're not. <coughs> you dare not think that you, a sinner by birth and a sinner by practice, may approach God in safety even if you bring the appropriate sacrifices. One will represent you. That person is Aaron, the high priest, 
and he only once a year. And the author tells us, however, that all of this was temporary. In fact, it wasn't even the real article, but a shadow of what was coming in the new covenant. What happened in the new covenant is that Christ, as high priest, eradicated all the animal sacrifices, eliminated the elite priesthood, made a full and final atonement for sin by his own blood, and elevated everyone to royal priesthood. Unbelievable. <coughs> Priesthood with full access to God any time, night or day, any day of the year with no prohibition to stay away or stay back. Hebrews 10, verse 19 and following puts it this way. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is through his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10, verse 19 and following. What is the author saying? He's saying this. God made saints out of sinners. That's what he did. He made saints out of sinners. He made priests out of commoners. Royal priests out of the rubble of society. And with all of the privileges of access to God that were reserved alone for the elite priests of the old covenant. What do we do as priests who no longer have animal sacrifices to offer and washings to do on a daily basis and incense to burn, etc., etc.? What do we do? Hebrews 9, 14 says that Christ offered himself unblemished to God so that we may serve the living God. Oh, that's something he had to do. Serve the living God. Implication? We serve as priests. We serve as living stones. Built upon Christ. Empowered by his spirit. There is the, therefore... An end, I'm going to use a the theology word here, 
the end of the sacerdotal, sacerdotal system. What is the sacerdotal system? That is the belief that human priests are absolutely necessary as mediators for people to approach God. That's the sacerdotal system. That system is finally and forever destroyed and made obsolete by Jesus Christ himself. Let me read it for you. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free. Hebrews 9, verse 15. Not only is Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, but he is the only mediator now. For these, let me read scripture again. For there is only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. What is that saying? It's saying, bye-bye, earthly priests. Bye-bye. Is Christ not the foundation upon which we are built? We're never away from him. We are ever with him then. And he ever supplies our foundation of service and our access. We may know God and God and go to God and serve God all in his power, the power of Christ. We confess nothing to earthly priests to be forgiven. We take our case directly before God. We take our case Boldly and unashamedly, we come without fear. How may we do such a thing? Is there safety in this? We are told in Scripture, God is a consuming fire. Will he consume us as he did Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, who introduced worship with unauthorized procedures? Are we safe in Christ? Who has placed himself at our feet as the foundation stone which supports the entire spiritual building? We're on solid rock, not shifting sand. Once upon a time, none of this was possible. Verse 10 says, Once you were not a people, but now 
You are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This free and full access to God in Christ we call the individual priesthood of the believer. If you know Jesus as Savior, you are part of this priesthood. You serve the living Christ as his chosen people. This is the church. It is not brick and mortar, but living stones built upon the living Christ. This is brand new stuff. No other faith in the world teaches this. So we are a house built from rubble. Number two, we are a worship house where all are priests. Number three, we are a spiritual house encompassing the world. He says of us, we are a holy nation. Verse 9. Wow. A holy nation? Theologians have wrestled through the centuries to find a name, a title, for believers in Christ living beyond the local assembly. So we know we're not alone in this. The Reformers used the word church. But everywhere we look in the New Testament accounts, the word church is applied solely to the local assemblies at specific geographical locations. For example, the Church of Jerusalem. The Church of Corinth, Paul wrote. The Church of Thessalonica. The Reformation changed all that. In 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his thesis protesting Rome's selling of indulgences, these indulgences were passports to eternal life, allegedly. You could buy your way to heaven. Just pay the right fee. We'll give you an indulgence. But he posted his protest on the castle church in Wittenberg. Rome saw itself as the church. Its structure of pope and cardinal and bishop and priest controlled the geographical religious order of the Western world. And they boasted, our church is universal and visible. Well, not to be undone, the Protestant reformers boasted, well, our church is universal and invisible. In actuality, they were both wrong because both declarations change the New Testament meaning 
and usage of the word church. The church ever and always refers to the local assembly meeting in a specific geographical location. We're the only church in Thornville that I know about. It might be. Of course, Thornville's a spot in the road, right? It starts here and ends there. But in saying that, we ought not to assume that we are the only true church. This truth that we are not alone as Christ's church has led to denominational distinctions being added to our names. So we are Thornville Baptists. The geography is stated, Thornville, this little spot in the road, and the distinctive, we are Baptists. In larger towns where there are multiple churches, this has been very helpful. For example, you can go to Lapeer and you will see a sign that says, First Baptist and a narrow. So it's First Baptist understood of Lapeer. If you look on the other side of 24, you'll see a sign that says Pine Street Methodist. Again, this time the street is given as the geography, then the distinctive were Methodist. Some churches wish to be known as non-denominational or interdenominational, so they will pick a name like Country Christian or Calvary Bible or simply the Fellowship. It isn't the name which makes the church Christian, nor truly fixed upon Christ to be living stones one has to be positioned on Christ as the foundation of everything that is said and taught and believed and practiced in his name because there are apostate churches who have departed from the gospel that Jesus taught I'm sorry but you have to realize that Assuming as I do that we do not have a corner on the truth. What do we call these brethren of all the other local churches in Lapeer County? In Michigan. In the USA. Throughout the globe. Who stand with Christ. Well some have said we'll call it the universal church but that's not best because it changes the meaning of how the New Testament uses the word church church is referred to the local assemblies 
Some have suggested we use the word body. Okay, the body of Christ. But that doesn't fly either. Why not? Because that same New Testament that we are trying not to misrepresent uses that technology in reference to the church. Let me read it for you. Ephesians 5.23 For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Of which he is the Savior. Ephesians 5.23 Again we read of the church of Ephesus. The body. We read of the church of Colossae. The body. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead. And so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Colossians 1, verse 18. Or again, Colossians 1, verse 24, just a few verses later. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what's still lacking in regard to church, to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So it's clear from these texts that the term body is used interchangeably as a synonym for the local churches that Paul refers to. So you're not escaping the identity of local church when you use the term body. Some like, well, why don't we just say that they're the family of God or the people of God. That has merit. But consider Peter's term, which we know is biblical. Let me read it for you. Verse 9, you are a holy nation. There's Peter's term. What's this word nation? It's a Greek word, ethnos, from which we get English, ethnic. Ethnic refers to a specific people group which shares in a common ancestry or heritage or belief system and practice. Example, the nation of Egypt. What do we know about that? Well, they had unique burial terms, tombs rather. The pyramids were built by them. They had unique hairstyles, a distinctive portrayal of people in paintings, profiles of their faces with eyes painted as though looking forward. All these things and more distinguish Egypt as a nation peculiar unto itself, unique and not characteristic of others. That's ethnicity. Peter says that believers in Christ are holy ethnos. A holy nation. A distinct 
people group that God himself called into existence out of darkness into his wonderful light. Verse 9. And he goes on to say in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Wow. How did all this come about? Verse 9. You are a chosen people. Keep in mind what we have already learned here, namely that God chose his people from the rubble, the refuse of the world. Now we are told how that came to be. We were shown mercy. We were called out of spiritual darkness. We were granted light for our ignorant souls. We were fixed upon the foundation stone of Christ. We were locked arm in arm and toe to toe with every other believer as living stones in this spiritual house. Old ties were broken. New ties were established. Verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. You mean, you mean we are no longer citizens of the United States? Well, in the flesh, yes. But as members of the spiritual house, no. Ours, I'm reading scripture here. Our citizenship, writes Paul, is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, verse 20. Can we not see how complete this transformation has been? We are a holy nation, an ethnic people group like no other. We're not few, we are many. We are not obscure, we are in the light. We are not insignificant, we are the main players. We are the royal priesthood in the rule and worship of God. We are not America only, rather we are a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Revelation 7, verse 9. When the nations conspire and the people plot, in Psalm 2, when the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, we are not part of that rebellion. No, we stand with the enthroned Christ. We are the nation they come to battle with. We read of the 
War of Armageddon in the book of Revelation. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And with him will he, his called, will be rather, his called, his chosen, his faithful followers. Revelation 17, verse 14. So we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, valiant and indestructible because of the power of Christ. We are a living, spiritual house. Now what is the task of the living church? Well, to be built up in Christ into a spiritual house. Verse 5. Ephesians 4.12 Built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 16. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So you have here the body analogy rather than the house of worship analogy. But the concepts are similar. Growing in faith and in the knowledge of the Lord is also something Peter commended in our text verse 2 he says like newborn babies you crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you tasted that the Lord is good what's he saying well tasting is like sampling If you're invited out to dinner and your host serves you some food that you have never eaten before, you're likely to be cautious in how much you put on your plate. God is like that with his people. Let me read it for you. This is from Psalm 34, verse 8. God speaking. What does he say? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. But when you bite into something that's good, you want a full helping. Wow, that's, wow, that's great. The scripture says, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. Indulge, go all the way. Trust the Lord. So we're built up into a holy church. And our role is to offer spiritual sacrifices 
acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We read last week from Isaiah 1 how displeased God was with his people, Israel, when they brought sacrifices to God without repenting of the blood on their hands, their sins. What were they thinking? We learn today that Christ himself is the once for all sacrifice of the new covenant, so we no longer bring animal sacrifices. But has there been repentance as we come before our God? Are the sacrifices we bring spiritual and acceptable? Peter gives us the directions we need to go. Verse 11. Abstaining from sinful desires, we are to live such good lives, verse 12, that pagans who are prone to slander Christians may recognize the good deeds as being so above and beyond the normal sources of human conduct that only God could instill such things and they glorify God in the end for your good deeds. That's how we're to live. And then he lists a bunch of good deeds. Submitting to every authority for the Lord's sake. Verse 13. Living as men free from bondage to sin and as servants of God. Verse 16. Showing proper respect to everyone. Loving the brotherhood of believers. Fearing God. Honoring the king. Verse 17. Submitting to harsh employers. Verse 18. Being willing to take punishment for something you didn't do. Verse 19. This is all high, unnatural, supernatural ways to live only God's grace can affect. No one normally lives that way. But God enables us to live that way. Build on the living church. Offering spiritual sacrifices. Finally, to declare the praise of the Savior who called us to be his. Verse 9. God constructs his spiritual house of people from all walks of life. Let me put it this way. No amount of sin, no degree of sin, is reason enough for him to disown you and reject you. Jesus is the choice cornerstone the builders rejected, but he himself rejects no one who comes to him believing. Verse 7. His spiritual house is made up of people with broken hearts and cracked lives and rusty thinking due to sin, which he gladly forgives and washes away in his own purity. God's plans are never thwarted, not even when wicked men reject him and disobey his message. In such cases, people stumble and fall, which is also what they were destined for, verse 8 says. 
God is never frustrated by your anger or hindered from carrying out his will by your unbelief. Unbelief on your part just signed your own death warrant. But God still builds his holy nation. God makes princes from paupers and royalty from street rats. He gives them free course, free access to his presence while barring, <clears throat> excuse me, while barring from his temple the aliens and strangers of the world. Verse 11. Freedom to come into God's courts with thanksgiving. That's your privilege too. Freedom to serve him with gladness of heart. Yes. Freedom to learn wisdom from God, the God of the universe. Most definitely. Freedom to love and be loved by God is something worthy of our praise. To be alive in Christ. Yes, we were once dead in trespasses and sins, says Paul. But now we have received mercy. Mercy. His mercy changes all. Do you know Christ today? Do you know the Savior? When he calls for you to repent of your sin and to come to him, have you done that? No. Then what makes you think you're set for heaven? You're set for another place, but it isn't heaven. There's no unrighteousness in heaven, no sin in heaven, no wickedness, no slander. No disobedience. It's a perfect environment. More perfect than Eden ever was. Because it's bought perfection through the blood of the only Savior the world is going to get. It costs God to make heaven what it is. It's all tied up in his beloved Son. And if you ignore him, it's like throwing away the key into the glorious city. Don't do that. Father, grant us your, the faith today to come and to believe in the wonderful work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he has accomplished. This one who has become the grantor of the living church by his very own Holy Spirit. He has done that. And he's given us such wonderful treasures through his shed blood and Calvary work. He doesn't just turn a blind eye to our sin. He does something about our sin. He pays for it. He washes it away. 
He intervenes. He becomes our substitute. He becomes our go-between. He assumes the role of judge and jury. For that is who he is. And he pronounces us clean and forgiven because of his great love. Because of his perfect sacrifice. Help us to see that. Help us to realize how desperate we are without Jesus and how wonderful we are treated with Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. From our hymnal, number 340.
is our prayer. We're not yet completely sanctified, but we long to be. We're not completely holy yet, but we want to be. And Christ is our model, our Savior. By the power of His Holy Spirit, one day we will be as righteous as our Lord. dwelling in a perfect heaven that's been cleansed by your gracious work. Thank you for each one here today. Thank you for the truth of the word of God. Thank you for preserving the Bible for us. It has endured centuries of persecution wherein people, primarily government officials, have tried to burn it out of existence and if any Christians were found to kill them out of existence. And even today, there are parts of the world in which it is very dangerous to be a follower of Christ. Bless those people. Maybe they're hiding in a cave or in the basement somewhere. I pray that you'll protect them. And may our people in America wake up and realize that what we call our Alienable rights, First Amendment being one of them, can be lost in a day if government is overthrown. Bless us with the truth that we have heard today and help us to be thankful that we live in America and to pray for our country. In Christ's name, amen. What? An event.
you get my age, you just forget about all this. <laughs>